Happy New Year, everybody, and hello. I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 114 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is a multi-multi-hyphenate. Musician, producer, author, publisher, reissue compiler, liner notes writer, de facto manager, video director, fanzine creator, and record collector extraordinaire, Andrew Sandoval. I've known about Sandoval for a long time. Our musical tastes are nicely aligned, and I've bought many reissues that bear the credit compiled by Andrew Sandoval. He was behind Rhino's Grammy-nominated Where the Action Is, Los Angeles Nuggets 1965-1968, to Hallucinations, Psychedelic Pop Nuggets from the WEA Vaults, and Come to the Sunshine, Soft Pop Nuggets from the WEA Vaults. Come to the Sunshine also is the name of Sandoval's weekly 60s-oriented radio show on WFMU. He worked on Elvis Costello's fantastic series of double CD reissues on Rhino, as well as reissues from The Zombies, Love, Harry Nelson, The Easy Beats, Elton John, The Bee Gees, and many others. Ray Davies even requested that Sandoval oversee the latest Kinks compilations. Among legendary 60s groups, Sandoval has worked most closely with the Monkees. Starting with Missing Links Volume 2 in 1990, he oversaw a series of Monkees releases for Rhino. He also got the band on the road and produced their shows, and he continues to do so with Mickey Dolenz, his sole surviving member. Sandoval created the video for Dolenz's recent cover of R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People as well. Sandoval wrote the 2005 book, The Monkees, The Day-to-Day Story of the 60s TV Pop Sensation. In 2021, he released a new version of The Monkees, The Day-by-Day Story that was more than double in size. It is available through Sandoval's Beatland Books, which also published three versions of Mickey Dolenz's lavish new photo book, I'm Told I Had a Good Time. Sandoval has a lot to say about the monkeys. I met him in person at the Wild Honey Foundation's Nuggets concert in May in Los Angeles. He matched artists with songs to perform from previous Carol Pop guest Lenny Kay's deluxe 50th anniversary edition of his legendary garage psychedelic rock compilation, Nuggets. Sandoval also arranged songs and played guitar and sang on stage. That makes sense because Sandoval is a singer-songwriter-guitarist who has released four albums under the name Andrew. It's just the kind of tuneful, well-crafted, 60s-inspired pop that you'd expect from him. Once we're here, then we disappear. But where we go, no one knows. He also has worked as a session musician and toured with previous Carol Pop guest Dave Davies. He got started with all this at a very young age while growing up in Los Angeles. He launched a fanzine, tracked down members of XTC, and managed to create a life revolving around the music he loves. That he is continuing to do so many years later is no small feat. His is an inspiring entrepreneurial tale. I love nerding out with him and could have spent an hour just talking about his record collection. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Andrew Sandoval. There's so much to say and so much to Is that is that the new edition of your monkeys book there? It is. Uh, it's yeah. Hang on one second. Let me pull this notice off. Yeah, it is the um, it's the new edition of it, which is a little bit lighter, um, but still seven hundred and forty pages. So all the same information and everything. But you you like updated it, right? Is there more info in it no. now? Or? No, no. Um, you know, I, I basically um, well. 
the update was done two years ago. So in 2005, I had a book out on the monkeys, uh, which I have over there, uh, which was about almost 300 pages. And this, this one is 740 pages. Right. And their careers from their births in the 1940s through to their dissolution at the end of 1970. So um, it's um, 740 big action-packed pages, lots and lots of illustrations, complete visual history as well as all the recording sessions they did, all their live appearances, all their television appearances and shooting dates for their TV show and just about anything you can imagine that I could find is in there. Right. So, so that, so it came out like, so I knew there was one that was like double the size. So that's the one that came out like two years ago. And then this is the new second edition of that. That's sort of a, the, the sort right. of lighter cover one. Right. So what happened was uh, when I made the initial one, I, I, I entered into this book business and I made hardback editions that were signed and numbered. And I promised I would never make those again. And I am holding to that promise. But the flexi bound versions, um, I waited a couple of years and was able to order some more because it's actually a, a tremendous expense to get them printed, believe it or not, and to store them and to ship them out. So so it was uh, waited a couple of years and now they're available again from Beatland Books, which is my site, which and I have the new book uh with Mickey Dolan's archive, which right. is to be delivered at the same time. Which looks beautiful. I mean, and you got your super deluxe and your deluxe version of that. Um, yeah. You, you've managed to, as someone who obviously loves, you know, 60s great pop music when in in the way that i look at pop as opposed to the you know the britney spears version of pop you you've managed to create this life surrounded by all these this fantastic music and fantastic artists how did you do that well um i guess it was serendipity and a lot of discipline um i started out when I was 14 i, I started publishing my own music fanzine uh when i was in junior high mostly because I was just obsessed with music and wanted to communicate with other people. And now you can do that very easily. And, and I love the fact that you can wake up any day and make some new discovery musically or make a new friend who has the same favorite records as you. But back then, you know, as a 14 year old, I was, didn't have the same musical tastes as a lot of my schoolmates, not that they were, you know, not great people, but I was into a whole different thing and I didn't feel like, Oh, well, I'm, way better than they are because I'm into this different thing. I just felt like an outsider. So I want to reach out to people. And in that time, fanzines were the way to reach out to other like-minded people. And I did encounter a few other people, but I mostly ended up writing all the articles myself myself under various pseudonyms and, and stuff and doing the record reviews and trying to get on promo lists. And I would approach um, publicists at record companies to get interviews with the artists that I was interested in at the time, uh, like XTC, who I interviewed for my third and final issue. But they mostly, you know, my voice hadn't quite changed. And they said, listen, miss, we don't just let them huh. interviewed by anybody. So um, I, that didn't deter me. Uh, it just, I wouldn't say it emboldened me. I, I just, I kept doing it because I really, I didn't have any other path in my life but music. I just kind of stayed there and I was always willing to do whatever I could to make ends meet. I've been supporting myself since my late teens, um, just doing this. And I mean, not necessarily making much money, but I've supported myself and never, never had a benefactor or anything. And mostly outside of the record companies too, because I, I found working for the record companies, um, as I have off and on 
not necessarily a, a great experience. Um, they certainly aren't as passionate about music and for good reason. And they see me, um, and I've been told this directly, they say, you have no judgment. You know, you actually like this stuff. We're trying to sell this to people who don't like it. So my <laughs> attitude has been, well, I want to find the people who really like it and make stuff for the core audience. And if some other people jump on board, that's great. But why not make it the best it can be rather than dumb it down for right. a wider audience? So so this year that you're starting, you're, you're, you're tr starting your fanzine, uh, what year was that? We're talking mid-80s? 1986. Okay. So, so, so you're talking XTC about skylarking, presumably. Well, uh, or you, maybe the Dukes by around then. It depends when, when you did it, but. Well, funnily enough, um, that was my third issue. Uh, so the first issue was um, uh, a career-spanning uh, overview of the band Madness, who had just broken up in 1986, one of my favorite bands. I love of all time. And uh, so I wrote that myself, and that was my cover story. The second issue, I managed to get an uh, actual interview with uh, Damien O'Neill, formerly of The Undertones, then of That Petrol Emotion. And so that was exciting I, as a 15-year-old walking to Electric Records and, and doing an interview. And then the following year, um, about 88, I, was, um, I wasn't putting them out a lot of fanzines. I, I was doing all this other stuff, too, like my work, my schoolwork and stuff. Right. So um, I, I managed to call up Cold Call Andy Partridge, who was recording the Oranges and Lemons album in Los Angeles at the studio. And I explained to him that I tried to go to Geffen and, and get an interview with the publicist uh, through their publicist there. But the publicist was on maternity leave, and I felt this might be my only opportunity to meet him and talk to him. And, and he said, OK, well, why don't you come down to the recording studio and watch what we're doing? So that was a great opportunity. And that happened to me a number of times encountering other other people. I was interested in recording engineering. I made friends with um, Chad Blake. He's a great recording engineer and now producer at the time right. working with the room. And I said, Oh, I'm really interested in, in recording. He goes, well, why don't you come down and observe? You know, we're, we're making um, Kiko with, you know, it wasn't called Kiko, but they're making the Kiko album with Los Lobos come down and watch how we make a record. So um, similarly, I was fascinated by reissues and, and what Rhino were doing. Um, and I made friends with Billing lot and he said, you know, come along and, Sit, be, sit behind me, watch what I'm doing. And I trailed him for some time, was writing an article about that, and then um, eventually got involved in reissues through that, through a lot of observing, being quiet, and having the right answer at the right time. So you're, you're a teenager growing up in L.A. It sounds like you, you were getting into like the 60s music. And at the same time, you're you're getting into bands like XTC that was also they were also listening to that stuff, like clearly around that time with Oranges and Lemons and Skylarking and Madness for that matter. I mean, you know, the rise and fall is like a, a peppy kinks album, basically. So it really uh, is. It's a, it's an amazing record. And it, yeah, to your point. Yeah. I mean, I started on, on the Beatles and then uh, got into other things. The, it just, just like you, you're saying, and, and certainly people like Elvis Costello and squeeze were leading me back and the jam were leading me back to listen to the small Absolutely. Kinks. I mean, also I had an older brother, stepbrother who is a massive kinks fan. And so I started to go see the kinks when I was 11 and they're still, you know, they're up with the Beatles for me as, as massive figures of, of uh, music. So it's a little bit of almost famous in this, you know, you're, you're just like the really knowledgeable young person who I'm sure just your, your enthusiasm, someone like Andy Partridge would be like, well, great. I'd much rather talk to you than some jaded, you know, rock critic who's gonna, you know, not really love what I'm doing. 
I'm not sure what Andy was thinking, to be honest, but he was he was very friendly. And Colin uh, Molding and Dave Gregory also did interviews with us. Uh, I brought along a friend the second day, uh, went back there and took photos and they were just very accommodating and they're down to earth people. I mean, they were sort of an enigma to a lot of people because they didn't tour. Um, and it just was happenstance. They happened to be in L.A. I mean, growing up in Los Angeles, and being born in Los Angeles was ultimately maybe the greatest asset uh, other than uh, the love of music that my parents had. And, you know, I was always around music growing up and that became that was the the sweet spot of everybody. You know, we didn't all like the same music. I think everybody liked the Beatles in my household. But, um, you know, that was the, the 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 part where everybody converged and, you know, was happy. And so I think I, I went towards it just as as, you know, this is what I saw as the positive thing in life was music. So um, and I just I banked everything on it, much to the chagrin of my uh, my mom, certainly, who didn't thought I was a total dreamer and kicked me out of the house. Didn't didn't think I was going to get anywhere and needed to, you know, get some reality. But ultimately, um, I just I kept going at it and um, and took it seriously. You know, I, I, I mean, every opportunity I got, I was like, I got to do this and be the best I can be. So and get better at what I do, get better at writing, get better at at engineering, get better at everything. Not not think like, well, here's a great opportunity, you know, handed to me. It's every every record I had that came out that had my name on it. I just wouldn't shut up about it, like was showing it to people, getting copies to people and saying, hey, can I, do you have anything I can do? Whatever. So right. I was always hustling to get other jobs. What was the first record you bought with your own money? I don't remember that. Um, I certainly had a lot of records in the house. My parents had all the Beatles records and the ones they didn't have, you know, on the backs of the U.S. Capitol albums, they'd have a little album mini. So, you know, something new by the Beatles and and Beatles six and things like that. You know, those are the ones we don't have these. I need to get these. And that's, you know, when I was very young, like six or seven, I was getting that stuff. And then the import Beatles records. I remember going into the warehouse and buying the U.K. help. Uh, with a coupon for a dollar off because <laughs> you could buy um, import records. I think back then were about six ninety nine or something like that for the UK ones. And then Japanese records, there were the Japanese imports that I looked at and those were eight ninety nine. Very expensive for the time. But, um, you know, that was the exciting stuff of the late 70s, early 80s. And in Los Angeles, almost everything was coming into L.A. as far as being imported. And then I started reading New Musical Express around 1982 and looking at the, you know, reading about other artists and uh, looking at what records were coming out every week in England and then wanting to get those. I have a lot of a uh, lot of memories of reading about records that I thought, oh, I would like this Re reading about records or seeing records listed in a discography, never thinking I could get them because there was nothing like discogs or eBay or anything where you could do a search. Um, when I bought my first copy of Village Green Preservation Society, I couldn't find one at all in Los Angeles um, at my regular haunts and eventually found that they had one down in San Diego, a two hours you know, plus drive from where I was. Uh, and that was the first copy I got was in San Diego. So, you know, that the whole... I don't actually see that as an, as like people say, oh, well, you know, it was different than in my day. We had to really work to get this music. I think it's wonderful now because I meet so many young people who are into so much more stuff. If I had had them as friends, you know, uh, growing up, I would have been so happy to know other people who like the same things. And then we all have all this access to 
incredible stuff and can hear almost any 45 that's ever come out and any you know weird thing is just up there and out there you know every day is kind of like exciting to see what's going to turn up today you know i travel around um on tour you know i've been doing touring stuff with the monkeys now since 2011 and my pastime is record collecting so invariably my day for the most part will start my serious work day will start at 4 p.m and then go to about midnight and then for a show because i'm the show producer and so we load in do sound check and then setting up uh, the audiovisual of the show and and a lot of the other logistics and that's not to say that in the morning like michael nesbeth wouldn't be the first person to wake up at eight and you'd say he'd say you know can you meet me for breakfast i'm worried about something and then mickey dolans might be the person to to send you the note at 1 1 a.m like you know i'm going to be, you know we need to talk like so, so there's that, but somewhere I would always find like, there's some sweet spot in the day, like an hour where I could, you know, look, look up where are the record stores and go look for stuff. And so I had this radio show, um, which is now through WFMU's rock and roll, um, radio stream called come to the sunshine. I've been doing for 17 years and it's mostly like 45s that I find and people say, well, what's your, what's on your want list? What are you looking for? And I said, well, I, I don't know what I do is I go through these bins and I look at what's interesting, the labels and writers, arrangers and, uh, and things I may have read about. And, um, I have a little portable record player. I don't always have that on the road with me, but I have it in the car for sure. Um, just in case and listening, you know, I'll, I'll, I think every artist, even the ones I don't think I, I might like, they everybody's made some kind of interesting record you wouldn't expect. And I think that that's the fun part is finding the weird records by, you know, more mainstream artists or people you wouldn't imagine. Uh, there's great music everywhere. What was the last record you found that just totally made your month? Wow. Well, geez, um, I was in England and I just I bought the biggest stack of 45s. Uh, I, w I went to the shop called Rise Above, which is in North London. I'd never been there before and I got a ton of 45s. So it's hard to I'm, I'm not being good about picking out one, but uh, there's a lot of this sort of British whimsy of like 67 through 68 uh, that I love, you know, in that sort of village green mode uh, with strings. And, you know, I love the Baroque pop of the left bank and the honey bus, those kinds of things. Right. And when did you start playing guitar? I started that probably when I was about 11 or so, 11 or 12. Yeah. So did you, do you have a, just have a guitar sitting around the house? Or did you get a guitar or how did yeah, that there was and, were a you, and were you thinking at that point also, like I'm doing this because I want to write songs or just because you want to learn how to play? Uh, well, there was a guitar sitting around the house. It wasn't particularly, very good it wasn't it didn't have it probably had rusted strings and, and stuff there was always musical instruments around but i believe the guitar I learned on was one my mom had gotten from her boss who had got like sort of a nylon string classical guitar and didn't get anywhere with it and said you know maybe your son who likes music would like this so i got that and i i put electric guitar strings on the classical guitar uh, for a while, which was not that great, but um, I started taking lessons. I don't know what my end goal was uh, with that, uh, but I did start writing songs pretty soon after just because I was interested. And I, I really admired people like Elvis Costello and, and Difford and Tilbrook and, and those sorts of people who were coming up with all these great melodies and songs. And, um, you know, that's, so I, I aspired to be a songwriter, I think first and foremost. And then I, just so happened to be doing reissues and in, in order to support myself. I mean, I think 
I, instead of sleeping on, you know, somebody's couch for years and years and really making it as a musician in my own right, I, you know, I, I took, I took the easier road of, of the reissues and, and stuff. So I made five albums and, uh, of my songs and very proud of them, but, um, you know, it's one of those things it's, it's lovely to kind of dip back into it. I just did a show this last like two weeks ago where I played a bunch of stuff off of a record I had out 20 years ago that I, I love called happy to be here. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I I've learned to sort of, instead of to be like, Oh, well this specific thing I want to do in music didn't work out. I sort of see like, it's just a big continuum of, of all these different things. And to get to kind of pop into that, mode is is just a real pleasure for me i mean to even be recognized to, to for anything in music it's like to me it's my religion so it's like any any recognition or any success is um i'm so grateful for you know i that's that's the bottom line on it and there's certain things you know i love my songs but maybe i'm i'm better at at helping other people with with getting their music preserved and or you know backing them up I, you know maybe that's the thing you know so i got to do it I, I funded my own records and stuff and got to do them with strings and all the other crazy things i wanted to try but uh yeah i you know it's sort of i have sort of a very middle ground feeling about it all well your songs are definitely informed by this music that you love. I mean, there's nice melodies, good chord changes. It's got those those elements in place. They're good songs. And 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 I would assume that you having done that would, you know, help you when you're then music directing like the Nuggets show, which I saw you at in Los Angeles and 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 all the work that you've done with these other bands like the Monkees, like you've gotten into the nitty gritty of crafting songs and arranging them. And I would imagine it all works together, right? It does. It does. And um, it's extraordinarily helpful. And um, yeah, I mean, certainly the songs I wrote uh, have the fingerprints of all the the thing, my, my influences and stuff. And also at the time when I was doing my, I can't say I didn't think of being a big, big star fan I'm thinking like, well, if, if not now, maybe later on people will pick up on what I'm doing. You know, that's the big star story. It, it was in the, in the nineties when I started making my records of the late nineties, uh, you know, well, maybe, Maybe there's like some future audience will get this, but future audience has not quite happened. I, it, it's interesting. I, you know, I started, I was a professional musician um, touring with Dave Davies of the Kinks as well um, in the late nineties. And that gave me probably the best uh, background on the touring that I did with the monkeys. And then I did some British invasion tours and other things. And that really, really pushed me along and, and showed me that whole side of the business. And um, you know, that just happened out, out of, the wild honey uh thing that dave came down to perform and my band backed him up and then he wanted to do some solo dates and we ended up going out on tour with him and learning just a whole lot through that um but i will say to go back to your question which is if it helps me out it does but a lot of the artists um it's hard to tell an artist we'll go on stage and do this i think this is going to work they're like well what do you know you know and i can say with sincerity you know I've been on stage at the Fillmore. I've been on stage at the bottom line. I have recorded and toured and performed in front of thousands of people, but there's nothing, you know, fronting a band or, or being the singer in a band or whatever, there's not, there's nothing quite like that experience. And if you're just in the background, like I've been, you don't know 
how much pressure there is at what you have on the line. I, I, I grasp that. And so I'm always very, very, um, uh, you know, empathetic to the artists and also, you know, they don't want to know about my experience. They don't want to hear about, well, I went on tour with this or I wrote this song. Artists do not want to hear about that. That's if you're interested in working with, with artists, they don't want, and they don't want to hear about, well, when I was working with Van Morris and blah, 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 they only want to know about them and what you're doing with them at that sure. moment. And it's them. They're going on stage. They're, you're doing their record. It's nothing to do with all this other stuff. So that's a real lesson to learn is, is just, you know, the focus has to be them and their journey because they're the ones who are putting forward the thing and their name is on, uh, on the record, their face and, and everything. And, and that's a great, they're, they're, they're making, taking a great risk, not only having you involved, but, but, but themselves putting themselves out there and expressing themselves, you know, as someone who, you know, considered the kinks up there with the Beatles and traveled down to San Diego just to get a copy of the kinks are the village green preservation society. What was it like to be sharing the stage with Dave Davies and then have him say, Oh yeah, join me on tour, be part of my band. Well, it was remarkable. Uh, <laughs> it was incredible. And the, the my standout memory of it really was each night because unfortunately, Dave at that time wasn't drawing uh, huge audiences. There's certain places, markets we played like Chicago or San Francisco where a lot of people would turn up in other places. They, they, we didn't draw enough people for the, the uh, promoters of the shows to be happy. And that that really educated me on how to deal with that because that I've dealt with throughout my career as a touring thing. There's always the really successful sellout shows and there's the ones that don't do as well. And how do you strike that middle ground where everybody's happy? Um, but I, I remember being on stage with Dave a lot and watching him play up close. And that was really informative because I was the rhythm guitarist and he was obviously the very loud lead guitarist there. And he had his amps cranked all the way up. But he had a very light touch because I always think like the Kinks records are very aggressive, but he was just very fluid and, and just an amazing player. Um, and uh, it's I, I don't even know how how it all worked. I mean, it's just now looking down the line at it. It's just crazy that it happened. We got together um, this year in New Jersey and had tea together and uh, we're going over. And, it's, you know, it's I used to be in a band <laughs> This guy is really a weird, weird and funny, funny, uh, funny situation. Um, but wonderful. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I can't help but be grateful for crazy things that have happened. Yeah, I interviewed him for Carol Pop, and and I pursued it for a while. And I talked to him when I was at the Chicago Tribune, and he was doing one of his first tours after his stroke. And I'd spoken to him, and then he's like, "Oh, come say hello at the show." And I said hello, and he gave me a hug. And I just thought this is like one of the nicest guys. And it's like it's freaking Dave Davies, like whose whose records I just love so much. And he was just like super nice to talk to and and hear play and and everything else. And and I just talked to uh, another person who played and toured with him, and you played on his album, and that was Dennis Dyken. Oh, so right. He sent me a file of uh, late music, and, mm, and yeah. I, so I so I looked it up on Discogs because they show the musicians there, and and I'm like, oh, Andrew Sandoval, there you are. You're the you're the keyboard supportist on it. And then he was telling me how he was a huge Kinks fan, and then ended up playing with Dave Davies as well. So I don't know if you guys played together on that, but you've certainly overlapped. No, well, what happened was originally Dave was going to go out on tour with the Smithereens, who were fully extant at that time. You know, Pat was obviously alive, and and um, the Smithereens had backed up the Kinks or Ray and Dave on a a promo show a few years 
earlier than that. This was about 1997, 96. And, um, but Dave found that it was much cheaper to have us uh, <laughs> on the road and not have to pay the smithereens and be co-built with them and share the money, you know, all that sort of, I mean, it was just a general, you know, business stuff. But the other thing was that we were very, not only eager, but we knew the material really well. I'm sure the smithereens did it as well. But when Dave first showed up to play with us, like in the afternoon, the day of a performance that night, um, he had, they'd asked us to prepare like three songs. I think it was Dead End Street, Too Much On My Mind, and uh, maybe Death of a Clown. Um but I was kind of surprised because, you know, I, I knew that Dave was doing some of those songs, but they were, those were Ray songs to me. So I was I, I was a huge Dave Davies solo fan. So when he walked on stage, the first thing he said to me was, well, what do you want to play? I go, I'd like to play Susanna Still Alive. He goes, right. oh, great. <laughs> what, what key do you do that? in?" I go, gee, like the record he goes. All right. You started off and, you know, dun, 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 dun. he goes, OK. That's great. Well, that's the song we're going to open with tonight. What else do you know? And then, so, you know, he immediately was like, well, these people know my music. So it's a real easy fit. And he was living in LA and we were in LA and the smithereens were back East. So we showed up and went to, we did lots and lots of rehearsals with him for free, uh, you know, just to see, just to feel it all out. And then he was like, yeah, you guys, you know, it was like, in two weeks, we're going on tour. We're going to go play, you know, the House of Blues. And we're going to play this place and that place and whatever. And we did we did that a few things, and we did some recordings with him with Dennis Dyken. Uh, he was recording out here that Bell Sound record primarily with my friend Dave Amels, and I played keyboards on one song, and he played drums on um, one or two songs on an album I was doing at that time called From Me to You. So, and Dennis and I have lots and lots of in common musically where we both were close friends of pf sloan too so we we would go and visit with uh phil sloan uh when dennis was out here and kind of go have lunch with him and stuff so nice and so at that point were you working as like a session musician or were you kind of splitting things with some of the you know record company work but then also picking up gigs on the side like how, what was how was your work life structured at that point Probably 90% reissues and 10% being a musician, um, except for the times when I was out on tour with Dave, where I was, you know, out with him, you know, just doing that, which was only, you know, part of uh, a couple of year period. Um, I, I never really worked as a session musician. I mean, if somebody asked me to come and play on their record, I would be overjoyed and thrilled and, and do it uh, in a heartbeat anytime because getting to play music is just a privilege for me. So, um, so that, and that, so that was the situation with that. And, you know, the, in the, in the same time period, I was doing my own records up through the early two thousands and, you know, taking a spin at that to see if I could find an audience, um, for what I was doing. And, but I was always doing reissues throughout the whole thing to support myself until about 20, 2009 or so 2010 when, um, I had been uh, working at the Rhino label uh, as a director there, and I got laid off with like 40 other people. And the reissue business just kind of collapsed. There was no more Tower Records. There was no more this or that. And we had just done a big star box set that week that I got uh, fired. I was the compiler and co-producer of that. And uh, also a Nuggets box set, the Los Angeles Nuggets, where the action is, which got nominated for a Grammy. Um, but I was I was which kind I of- own. 
<laughs> I was cut loose. So at that point, um, I had been approached by a, a very established uh, British manager, and he had he said, "Well, you know, you've you're you've been an A and R person now, and uh, why don't you try management? You know, get the monkeys back together for a tour." Which I spent a couple of years. It was a couple year process to do uh, because I had gotten to know them um, from about 1990 on. Uh, the four of them pretty well uh, on a business level, not really like, pay, hey, buddy, what's going on, man? I, I would never call the monkeys just to, you know, shoot the breeze. It was always, we're doing this project, or I think you, you know, you should be mindful of this. Like there's this going on with this aspect of your publishing or whatever. It was always a business thing. So when I approached them on this business level, it was, you know, they took me seriously. And, um, but it still took a couple of years of arm twisting to get them to go back out on the road together because it was not um, immediately intuitive for all of them. Um, <laughs> they, they had so many interpersonal struggles. So what happened was I became the, the intermediary standing point because I knew all of them. So they come and yell at me about the other guys rather than yelling at each other. And it held it together a lot better. So, and they knew that I was, uh, I used the word, empathetic a lot so far today, but they knew that I, I understood their issues with the other guys because I'd known them and also studied their history. So, and also I knew the kind of baggage they had and the crazy bad stuff people had said about them and mean things that people had done. And, you know, so it was, we went into it and then what happened was the, the established manager said, these guys are too much trouble. And there was uh, the tour kind of shut down. And then ultimately um, I came back, um, anyway, and brought Michael Nesmith back into the fold, um, and worked with him also as a, as a solo artist after that somewhat. Um, but you know, the touring took over from reissues because reissues I do now is really a hobby. Um, because I used to make a living doing it, but like the, what they pay for reissues, the, it's sort of like they're doing me a favor. It's almost like pay to play at this point. I get, I get called to do some great projects. But um, it's been several years since I've really been paid normal money for doing that. Um, labels just, you know, the money isn't there streaming and then they just don't see the value in doing quality work for the most part. But the, the ones that do, I will do the records with them like I do just did the most recent Kinks um, compilation, The Journey, which was just announced. Um, supervised all the audio for that and right on that. And, uh, you know, I love working for Sony if ever they have anything for me, but that's what happens. What was the first one that you did? Like, how did you get into the reissues business? Well, the very first one I did was monkey's record, um, missing links volume two, which came out in January of 1990. I worked on it in 1989, which is the same year I graduated from high school. And I also worked at the Rhino record store because they had their own retail thing that was not attached to the label. And it was actually, uh, to get to move from the store to the label was something that didn't often happen. It was a very different talent pool or, or employee pool. So uh, the, the fact that I got to jump over and do that was really the credit to Gary Stewart and Bill Inglot. Um, and the fact that I would write liner notes for $150, I think. <laughs> so I, you know, but luckily I got a nice credit on that record uh, in addition to the notes for uh, doing the compilation with Bill Inglot. And, uh, and I, you know, I took that and I showed it to other people at other labels and got other work. I just hustled. I mean, really the phenomenon of seeing my name on all these records and stuff 
that didn't really sort of catch up till about like 20 years into my career where I'd done so many that finally it start, I started to get jobs from that. It was just a real, um, just really working really hard for the first 20 years. Um, I rarely ever got called in to do things. I was always, you know, attempting to instigate projects because people have asked me like, well, how do you, how do I get into reissues? I want to do what you do. You know, I would, my advice is um, come up with your own idea, a concept of something that hasn't been done and, you know, find out who owns it or license it yourself and put it out yourself. Or, you know, that's, that's a good way to get rolling. You got to show somebody something. It's hard to walk in the door and say, well, I know a lot about, um, you know, um, the specials. Can I do the specials? Well, we already got somebody doing that or, oh, they're all out. Or we can't get the artist approval. Um, You know, they have, they have um, clearance on all the stuff, you know, we can't just want to do the specials, you know, uh, and that's what you find out. So a lot of it's like also knowing the labels that own the material, knowing the artists, knowing the artist is a good thing sometimes, you know, um, if your approach is through the artist, sometimes they can suggest uh, you to the label. Well, I, we have this person to do this. And the only artist that has ever done that in my entire career who said to the label, the person I want working on my record is Ray Davies of the Kinks. No other artist I've ever worked with has ever suggested me to the label or insisted that I work on the records except for Ray Davies. Well, that's a good one. It is a great one. But how you did know, he, how did where he was Elvis Costello? Where, where were the Bee Gees? Well, why, you know, these people, <laughs> yeah, you think people think like, well, he gets to hang out with all these people. It's like, it's not a hangout thing. It's work. They're often kind of mean to me. You know, you've got terrible taste. Why do you, there's no way that's coming out. How dare you? You know, I get a lot of that. And you also have to sort of separate the art from the artist and realize I want to work on my favorite music, but I also want to listen to the records when we're done. Um, and uh, so you have to understand that you're, you're messing with their most intimate thing that their, their, their aspirational expression to the world. You know, you want to get involved in that. You better be ready for for some tears and some heartache <laughs> did ray davies know you at that point when he suggested you yeah yeah i had already worked on quite a few things uh for them and what happened was there was a changeover in their catalog um as happens when you're around for a long time it, it moved to some different people and they they didn't know anything about me or didn't care to uh and but he suggested and they reluctantly they're like well what have you done you know i said well you know i've Van Morrison, the BGs, Elvis Costello, you know, oh, okay, well, you know, we don't have a lot of money. Okay, well, it's the kinks. So I, I want to do this, you know, Th- this is that's the that's the that's where I'm coming from after like 30 years of doing it. So when people say, oh, I really like to do the reissue thing, I'm like, I would recommend doing anything else, <laughs> unless so, you're starting your own thing up. So is that Ray Davies thing for the one you're doing now the journey? No, no, no. This was quite a few years back. And so, um, and, um, it's all, it all worked out fine, you know, and Ray also is, is probably the most sensitive artist I've ever worked with. Um, I mean, they're all, they all have different levels of, um, of wanting. I mean, like Elvis Costello is one of my favorite artists and I, I really appreciated getting to be involved in his catalog, which I did over an eight year period. Those are the Uh, Rhino re-releases, those two disc ones. Yeah. So I would compile the second discs of those and then send them over to um, 
to Elvis and to get his approval. And unlike most other artists who take off stuff, they're like, there's no way. No, no, no. There's a reason why that didn't come out. No, 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 no. Elvis is like, oh, here's like 15 other things I'd like. <laughs> you know, to add on to that, he's always he's always the more is more kind of thing, and I appreciate that because um certainly people like the maximalists like Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead they don't they see it all as their body of work, right. whereas a lot of you know the Beatles, the Kinks, um you know the who they're they they you know they're looking at well we put out these records for a reason and the records. You know, this this was a B-side for a reason. This was an outtake for a reason. We didn't pick this tape for a reason. And why, you know, why should people get to hear it? So my I have to have my different arguments for different people. Um uh, but yeah, that that's that was the situation. And then people also told me, oh, you, oh my God, Van Morrison, that's gonna be like the biggest nightmare. And he was one of the artists I enjoyed working with the most. Similarly, the Everly brothers. People said, Oh my god, the Everly brothers, terrible. Those guys, they just fought. They were the nicest people I ever worked with. I got to say, they, but they also when they when I start talking to them and, and show them just like I knew all of their records and and um, but didn't you know you, you can't you can't one up the artists. You have that's the other thing you have to learn. You don't don't <laughs> say you're wrong because I've had lots of artists tell me no no this came out in this year and, and you know that they're not right but it's not important to correct them. Right. What's important is are you going to get the record out? What can you get out to the fans to hear? So then you get to the monkeys and are you, were you immediately sort of overseeing all those aspects, you know, the musical presentation, but also, you know, the merch and just how they presented the whole tour then? Well, it, it, it sort of happened a little bit, bit by bit. And the first tour I did, Davy Jones was still alive and he was actually probably the biggest monkeys fan I ever met. Uh, he knew all their records like I did. And when we were doing rehearsals, we he and I had sort of brainstormed a set list that was Bruce Springsteen length for the monkeys um, until until we had to kind of cut it down a bit. Uh, but he would be the one who would say, oh, no, you're playing the wrong bongo part. And can you dig it? You know, this is how it goes. He he listens to the monkeys records for pleasure, unlike the other guys mm. who were sort of like, well, that's something we did. And, uh, you know, could have been so much better. You know, always had that sort of baggage. And, and Davey didn't have that. Uh, and so. I got involved with with um, multimedia in that show, and then um, merchandise, not at all at the beginning, because uh, Rhino owns the name of the Monkees, and they controlled the merchandise. And we did not have much input at all until um, the tour started to become more successful and more regular, uh, where I start to get um, input in in the what they what they manufactured for the fans, and uh, so. But the uh, there are other aspects of the walk in music, as they call it. I programmed that from the day one and, and all stuff, little things. I mean, because no one else would have that prepared, but I was thinking like, if I get the shot, you know, it was just kind of like when you, I worked at the record store, it's like finally your turn for in-store play, you know, well, I'm going to put on a record that not only am I going to like, everybody's going to, you know, you, it's, it's always that sort of like, how do we, how do I spread the word about what I'm into? So. And how were they together? Like, did they did they like each other, or was it uh, sort of you know like you going between the four different buses that they were on to try to make sure everything was okay? Well, when they were together, they always were were getting along for the most part. I mean, for like ninety percent of the time, they had a few fights, uh, just as any any artist would over things. And um, but they saved it up, so the so the little things would kind of come to me. 
it irritates me when he goes on stage and does blah, 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 or he was doing this for too long. And so I would actually go and talk to each person and, and get that sort of sorted out as the, I, I became known as the show producer because I was doing the functions of a manager, not a tour manager, but a manager, manager, negotiating deals and representing them for various things, but they didn't like that uh, title. They did not want me to be called their manager. And also in the with the monkeys, the show producers were the creators of the monkeys, Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider. And they had they ultimately did act as their managers in the 1960s. They arranged the live shows and all these other things. So in effect, I was taking over the baton from from Bert and Bob in a way, um, and doing those functions, and that was the preferred term. So I became a show producer, but also be not just the fun stuff. The the doing the set list would be, you know. 90 minutes of fun, um, finding out how to pay for trucks and buses and airplane, airplane flights. And so-and-so wants to be on a private airplane without the other guy, you know, that sort of stuff. I had to deal with all of that and come up with an equitable solution that suited everybody. And we got through it. We got through many, you know, more than a decade of, of that. So, but that is the reality of, is that the fun stuff, getting to pick the Elvis Costello's bonus tracks is only like that much of the day it's most of the, most of the time is like, how do you, how do you actually make all that work and get that out to people um, and make the record company happy and make the artist happy and make the, the promoters happy. And, you know, it's just, that's, that's what I do. And, and also realize that there's no crude credit just because you've done X, Y, and Z or XTC or whatever, that you're starting from ground zero. Every time you walk into a job, you're starting over again and you need to, you need to work as hard as you can. And, and uh, you know, you're not going to get to rest on your laurels at all. Yeah. It seems like something you've been able to do that a lot of people and a lot of artists have trouble doing is using both sides of your brain so that you're getting, you know, the business stuff and the entrepreneurial stuff in order, getting your ducks in a row, all of that sort of thing, while also nurturing the creative side of artists, you know, other artists, your own creative impulses. And that's that's hard for a lot of musicians and just creative people in general to sort of deal with the practical stuff on top of, I want to just create, you know? Yeah, I, I don't recommend it. I mean, I think for most artists, having someone outside of them to help them through with the business stuff. I mean, if you were there counting out the merch at the end of the night and you're, you know, you're making sure that, you know, your two bottles of, of wine and the, you know, the apple juice came in on the rider, you know, if you're doing all that minutia, it doesn't leave a lot of room for creativity and writing songs and doing other stuff. And then, you know, then you have to have, talented people taking care of you and you have to have people who you trust. And that's, that's difficult because everybody gets taken advantage of at one time or another. I, I certainly have been, I mean, it just, that's what happens in life. I, I wish everybody were honest and, um, you know, we're scrupulous, but, um, that's just not the case. Uh, but you know, in, in order to be productive, you have to make concessions and you have to give up certain areas of control to, to actually get your, your message to the people. Right. And you didn't go to business school or, or anything, right? No, no. I, I mean, I literally graduated high school. I started going to um, community college uh, and dropped out and uh, went right to work at the record label. I, on my 18th birthday, uh, Gary Stewart, who's uh, one of my mentors, um, a lot of people know about him, um, 
he said, what do you want? You know, I didn't get you anything. What do you want for your birthday? I said, I want a job at Rhino. He's like, are you serious? I go, yeah, I'm serious. He goes, well, would you be willing to do anything? And I said, yeah. So um, a few days later, he called me, he goes, show up at Rhino at you know 8.30 a.m. or 9 a.m. And I had a job in customer service. I was dealing with customer service people. I want to be an A&R, but, um, you know, I was I was true to my word. I got my foot in the door and, um, you know, I went from there. And, and it's good to learn about customer service. That's the thing. It's like you may want to be the guitar player, but it's, it's good to know about all these other things because they really will help you um, down the road, you know. That, uh, you know, Jiffy mailers cost this much. And if you're buying this many, you know, it's like all these other things about about getting music out to people um, and also making them happy. Um, certainly with my book company, I wanted to set up something where my customers were getting taken care of and that I, I wasn't going to have that many customers where it was going to be Amazon like where I could give away stuff for free. But just to make sure that people were happy and I'm a big consumer myself, I buy stuff more or less every day of the week, I'm buying books or records or whatever online. And um, I have good experiences and bad experiences. I've had money taken from me. I've been sent empty mailers, uh, you know, and not had any recourse through PayPal. I know what it's like to, you know, to be very unhappy with, with stuff, but therefore I want to try and have a better experience with my customers. And for the most part, I think I have uh, with the books and the, the book company. So. Yeah, well, again, the book company also, like a lot of people would be would be like, you know what, I'm going to write the book, I'm going to hand it off to someone, I'm going to get a crappy your royalty rate, and that's sort of that. And then the way you're doing it, you're in charge of the quality control, you're in charge of, you know, how it's going to go out and, and all of this. And then you also have the headache of where do you put the books and you got to mail these things out and all of that. And so you're giving yourself a lot more work as opposed to freeing yourself up to do all the creative stuff. But on the other hand, you're keeping control of it. And, and, and so you're the one who's going to do the customer service because you're serving the customers with your own book company. Right. I mean, ultimately I'm, I'm the owner of the company. I do have a customer service person because I realized that Good. if I was dealing with that, <laughs> it's worth, it is worth paying somebody who I trust to do it. And I, I, uh, I uh, appreciate her dearly for it. Um, but you know, the reality of it is that, um, I don't, I wouldn't get to do the creative part at all. If I didn't do the business part, that that's the thing there, no one's, no one's offering me the creative jobs, um, you know, uh, in, in any quantity they're being created by me and therefore I have to do the business part of it. So, you know, I had a book out, um, on the monkeys in 2005 and, uh, and it was well-regarded and sold about 15,000 copies at the time. And then the company that put it out in the United States had, I had a British publisher and they sold it to a company in the United States and they were shut down by the FBI for accounting fraud. So that's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. It's not never good. So I bought the assets back of the book and then, um, you know, I said one day I'd like to do this, uh, an expanded version of it. And during the, uh, just before the pandemic, I was getting, getting started on it. But then when uh, the pandemic hit and I hit lockdown, I was like, I can't go on tour. I'm going to be in, you know, financial crisis here. I've got to do something. What's the most, what's the thing I could do that people would most want from me? And I realized it's this monkey's book. I'm going to basically gamble everything. I took out a series of loans. Uh, to get it printed because the thing was, I didn't want to just do a commercial monkeys book that you, you know, would be 
you know, $20, but you could really get it for $9 on Amazon. Not because I don't want people to have it for cheap, but because I didn't want to do like, like a dumbed down version of all the information I'd collected over 30 years. I wanted this gigantic book, which I feel really good about because I don't remember all this stuff. I mean, it's all in here, you know? And I also didn't think like, well, you know, I've done a book, so I can just do this on my own. Um, I have a friend, Brian Kehoe, who's done a number of Beatles books, and he he led me to the right uh, printer. And um, I had, you know, four different editors on this book, um, you know, working working through it so that you see a lot of self-published stuff. That people are doing great stuff, um, but they're editorially, it's, the level of writing's not great. Uh, there's mistakes. There's other things because they don't have any other eyes looking at it. They're just thinking like, well, this is my topic. I'm doing it. And that's the great thing about um, self-publishing and print on demand. You know, there's all these great books that are coming out on subjects that would never be touched by a publisher. But I want to do things at a different a different level. No one would do this kind of thing. You know, um, Genesis books do all the beautiful Beatles books and Eric Clapton things. You'd never do a monkey's book like this. But I want to do that kind of a thing, and but not charge quite as much as them. And um, and similar thing happened when I saw all of Mickey's photos. I was just blown away by this archive of, you know, he didn't just shoot the monkeys. He shot Otis Redding um, because he happened to go up. Dewey Martin from Buffalo Springfield said, hey, I'm going to see my friend Otis. Why don't you come up? And he's like, great, I'll bring my camera. Shot Otis Redding, shot nice. Jimi Hendrix, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Harry Nilsson, Ringo Starr, you know, just all these people he encountered in his life. They were just, and um, he just, had them in boxes and didn't really think they were anything special um, and continued to need to be convinced that they were special for uh, two or three years. And now we're at this point and I'm really excited. People finally get to see this private view of, you know, 1200 images over 500 pages in the Mickey's book. Right. Yeah, no, it looks from, from the stuff online, it looks gorgeous. And that's just about to come out, right? Yeah. So the book is being printed right now and, it's due to ship to customers on December 6th, but my uh, printer broker, there's all this intermediary stuff because it's being printed overseas that we hope to start shipping them out sooner. I mean, as soon as they get into the warehouse, I won't be there. I'll be there when they arrive, but I'm not going to be personally doing the orders. I pay people to do the, you know, at a at a regular warehouse where they ship out all kinds of other goods and uh, get them out to the people. So, um, so that's the plan is as soon as possible. Had you done the first version of the monkeys, the day by day story before you started working directly with them? Uh, no, I did that um, quite a few years, about 15 years into my relationship with them, actually. And um, it certainly they looked at it. But I I think Davey was the only one who gave it like a serious read. But um, everybody was was quite happy with it. Um so they didn't it, it wasn't seen as like taking advantage of them or their story. It was just putting all this information in, uh, right. in as reference together. And they appreciate that. I, I got this phone call out of the blue from Don Kirshner after it came out. I was like, oh, boy, what, you know, is he going to be? You know, I was honest about him, but I hadn't interviewed him. I couldn't get an interview with him. And he said, uh, I got your book and I really like it. In fact, I want you to write my biography. And uh, wow. I said, oh, well, that's really interesting. I still was a little bit um, suspicious of whether or not uh, he and I could work well together. So I said, well, why don't we do an interview together just to see how we feel? He goes, well, I don't give really interviews to anybody. I said, well, unless we can do an interview, I mean, that your book is going to be made up of interviews. So we did do an interview. 
And uh, we know the book, the the project did not go further than that. But uh, I got a lot of good feedback on on the book um, because it's it's information and it's a lot of firsthand information from primary source material, uh, session records, the actual session tapes. You know, I listened to every single session reel that is extant on monkeys, and there are a lot. You know, hundreds of hours of them, and then paperwork, paperwork, paperwork. I mean, not. Not just I found this on the internet. Like you know, for this most recent book, what I did was um, there was a lawsuit with Don Kirshner and the Monkeys in 1967, and somehow when he passed away some years ago, he he had held on to some of the papers, and they were at his residence in Florida, and there was an estate sale, and uh, somebody bought them at an estate sale and was selling them on eBay, and I found out after the fact. And I was uh, I had alerted fans. I said, "Oh, I'm doing this book. I'm updating it. I'm looking for paperwork." And a very nice fan said to me, "Oh, I got this off of eBay. Do you think you'd want it? It's a lawsuit deposition with Davy Jones." And I said, um, "I'm not really sure about that." He goes, "Well, it's really long. I don't think I can scan it all for you." It's. I said, "Well, do do me a favor. Just take your phone and just." shoot off a few photos with your phone. I, I, I'm not going to reproduce a deposition in my book. So I uh, just to see what it was. And when, when he did, he goes, Oh, well, that was easy. Here's, here's 80 pages of it. So I started reading. I was like, this is incredible. And then I went to another friend of mine who's a researcher and she said, well, that's the case number on the front. You need to write to the court and find out where the rest of the papers are. So I did. And literally about two or three weeks before lockdown, I flew to New York and I looked at 2,000 pages of documents of this court case, which dealt with uh, Don Kirshner versus the Monkees and Screen Gems, but also went over their entire history of how the project came to be, um, all their thoughts on each other in these lengthy depositions from 1967, not wow. after the fact, not like years on, like, well, that guy was a jerk or what. It was like, this is all happening at, and this is when they're at their height in May, March through May of 67. The biggest band in in the in the world, actually, at that point. And um, I went to the court. They said you it's too much stuff to scan, but you can use your phone. You can take photos of these things, and you can you know you can use them for reference. And and so I did. And that was the basis of why this became such a huge book, volume wise, because I learned more about the monkeys in 2020, early 2020, than I had. Um, in the ensuing 10 years gap between the books, I, I did all new stuff. Uh, and then, you know, I, it was really like, I couldn't just modify my book. I had to rewrite it. What was the biggest surprise for you in all of that? Like anything that changed your thinking about what their history had been? That I thought that the, that the, uh, d- <laughs> I thought the lawsuit between, um, Don Kirshner and, and screen gems of the monkeys was over creative control because, um, ultimately they wanted creative control and the monkeys went and did headquarters. Um, and that's the focal point, I think, of my work and the, and the book. But uh, what it turned out to be was that Don Kirshner, what I found in his favors was he was illicitly making phone, uh, making tape recordings of phone calls with various people and then had threatened, you want, you better settle with me because uh, I have all of these phone conversations and uh, it, I'll make them public if, unless you settle with me. It's sort of a blackmail thing. Wow. And um, the attorneys on the other side said, we feel they're going to be more incriminating towards you because they break FCC rules. So produce them. You know, it was an order to produce by the court. 
And at that point, he destroyed a lot of the evidence. So the court case became about that rather than the monkeys fight to be a band and his reluctance to let them play their own music. And so I was going to do a book about that um, in, in the days just before um, lockdown. At the end of February, I was like, pit, I was out, had a one sheet, was pitching the, you know, the monkeys versus Don Kirshner. Here's this epic tale of, you know, it's a story you don't know. And it was a great, great thing. And then when lockdown happened, I was like, you know, that book is is something I'd have to sell to somebody. I want to do like rewrite the monkey's history and do it myself and raise the money and you know, um, and that's what I did. Right. And you didn't do a memoir with Don Kirshner, which probably would have been pretty fraught when you look back on it. Yeah, I look at all those those opportunities um, that I've passed up on, um, and there's been some interesting ones, and not I don't have any regrets. Um, I think I understand my own limitations too. I I don't think that I'm God's gift to anything. I just think like, well, you know, I can make this work. I can't make this work. I pretty practical uh, and all that. And how did the, how did the Bee Gees Day by Day uh, book come about? And how close did you work with any of them? Well, I I certainly um, interviewed and worked with Barry Gibb and Robin Gibb um, uh, for a time on their reissues when Rhino acquired the catalog. And um, and did their first four albums as expanded deluxe records, and I'm a massive Bee Gees fan. And at that time, went through all their session tapes, like I did of the Monkees, and made notes and all this stuff. And um, Eric Lefkowitz, who was the uh, first writer to have a book out on the Monkees, uh, the Monkees Tale, he started his own publishing company, and he said, "I'd really like for you to do a day by day book, and I'd like you maybe to do your Everly Brothers day by day, which I'd done part of in a Bear Family box set." Um, I'd like you to do that for my book company. What do you think? And I said, okay, well, I have this other thing, which is the Bee Gees. And he said, oh, well, let's do that. So we we did that. And um, now it's been so many years and I've acquired more material like everything else because I keep buying up old newspapers and magazines and that's where I find little tidbits of stuff. And so I hope to have the time through Beatland, my company, to republish that uh, as an expanded book uh, sometime in the near future. But the next book, I think after this, uh, will probably be uh, not a monkey's book, but uh, but one, uh, a kink's book. So, and not one that I wrote. Um, but, I, but we're kind of prepping it now for next year. And uh, so that's pretty exciting. Huh. Uh, is that a biography of the kinks or something else? It's uh, It's more of a reference book. Um, and it's, um, my friend, Doug Hinman, who's sort of the, the, the kinks expert. It's, it's one of his books. So, and now you're, you're still working with Mickey Dolan's and are you producing those shows still? Like, are you still his sort of manager producer at this point? Well, yeah, I have been up to about a week or so ago. We had these, uh, monkey celebration shows, which, um, I don't, I'm not sure if everybody really understood what they were, but. Um, when Mickey does a solo show, you know, obviously he does the monkeys hits and then he, he does, you know, some other stories and some other, like a lot of, um, you know, oldies artists or whatever heritage artists you want to say, will do other people's hits. Like if you go see Peter Noon, he's not just doing Herman's Herman's hits. He's doing daydream believer and he's doing these things because he wants to appeal to a more general audience. And that's what Mickey does in his solo shows. But when we do these monkey celebration shows, it's just monkeys material. It's for monkeys fans. And he talks about the other three guys, Peter, Michael, and David. Uh, we have films of them that, that we created and stuff from his private archive of films. And um, also 
this last time he was doing all the headquarters album. Uh, and so we're going to probably do some more of those next year, not headquarters ones, but um, some other ones that are specifically monkeys specific shows and sister sings a few songs. There are band members sing a few songs, but with the monkeys thing, it's, you know, he's the voice of the monkeys this is the last monkey guy. And those shows that I produce are strictly that much to, you know, everybody's like, are you sure just the monkeys? Well, you know, but I know the fans want to see a monkey show. So. Sure. Yeah. And where did, where did the Dolan sings REM uh, EP idea come from? Well, that's an interesting one. Well, he had just done Dolan sings Nesmith a couple of years earlier in 2021 and uh, which Christian Nesmith, Michael's son produced. And, uh, um, I was the A&R person for that. I picked the songs that Christian arranged and, and produced and Mickey sang at Mickey's behest. He, he did, he did actually in, insist that I do that part. So I will give him on the Ray Davies level that he did, he did say that. So, uh, subsequent to that, uh, there's a, a great monkeys fan scholar, Gary Strobel, who's well known to all the monkeys fans. And he's been working on a book since 1984 on the monkeys. Oh, we're always encouraging to get, to get it out there. But he had gotten an email from Bob Rafelson, who was the creator of monkeys. Um, just prior to Bob dying. And he said, have you ever heard this song by R.E.M. Shiny Happy People? Do you know how many millions of views it has on YouTube? It was inspired by the monkeys. And and in Bob's feeling towards the end of his life is like, the monkeys is a really great thing. And, um, you know, it inspired other people to do other pieces of art that are, that are, are, have resonated beyond where the monkeys are. So Gary said, don't you think Mickey should do this song? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it sounds like an interesting idea, but I don't know. I, you know, I, I didn't know that that was uh, something that had to happen, but it was sort of divinely inspired by Bob Rafelson. And Gary kept on with it. And he went to uh, Glenn, uh, who runs this label called 7A, which is a sort of monkey, started as a monkey specialist label, but has embraced other artists now, Dave Edmonds, Macy Gray, all these other reissues that are pretty interesting. And Michael Nesmith solo, some things I've been involved with. Um, and he convinced him to finance an EP with Christian producing four songs of REM uh, stuff. And then we were working on Mickey's book, getting the the signature pages done that are bound into the, the, the books. And Mickey said, oh, well, we're putting out this shiny, happy people thing. And I hadn't heard it. No, no one had shared it with me. And uh, he said, they made a video and I, I don't really like it. Um, do you think you could fix it for me? <laughs> so he sent me a video that had been created by AI. Um, oh, no. Basically, uh, yeah, fed in, you know, uh, because the label didn't really have the funds to do anything. And uh, and so I approached Glenn and he said, oh, I, I don't have any money. You know, you don't, you know, I said, uh, well, why don't we just see if I can make something that, Mickey might like first before we discuss anything like that. There's no obligation or you're not under any, anything. You're not paying me to do anything. Let's just see what I can come up with. And over an evening, I went through Mickey's films and I came up with a video for uh shiny happy people that has now been pretty successful for it. So, I mean, it's just Mickey's home movies, but uh, my biggest fear in doing it when I showed it to him the first time was, the people who aren't Mickey in the video, his family and stuff, is he going to say, oh, no, 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 don't have them in or, or whatever. His only thing to me was he goes, you can't have the other monkeys in the, in the clip because, uh, which he does have home movies of them because they're not on the record. And I don't want people to have the miss, uh, to misrepresent 
the monkeys. He's, you know, right. protective of the audience and them. You know, I don't want to imply that Peter and David and Michael are on my record or that the record's about them or anything. I just, I want, you know, you yeah, can use sense. the film, but only this stuff. So that's, that's what I did. Uh, so I'm, I'm pleased with that. And, uh, and it's also, the song has, has taken on its own life now and uh, Mickey's doing it live in his shows if you go see him. It's sort of, um, you know, not, nothing that I expected uh, and uh, kind of another wonderful little, little tidbit in there. Pop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. If you're planning on observing dry January or just want something unique and tasty to take to your next party, Revolution has created an excellent non-alcoholic beer alternative. Super Zero is a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling Antihero IPA. Not only does Superhero contain no alcohol, but there are also no calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. It's available in six-packs at stores and on RevBrew.com. The Nuggets concert, but you were like one of music directors. You seem to be running a lot of the stuff during that. Like, how did that come about and how much fun was that for you? Well, it was a ton of fun. Um, and it came about because I've been one of the four founders of Wild Honey Foundation, which has done charitable concerts uh, in L.A. since 1994. Uh, we started out with a Beach Boy show in Paul Rock, who's the primary founder in his living room. He he lived, he shared a house with some people that had a very large room that could hold about 20, 30 people. And we had a little Beach Boys tribute thing. And then we rented out a theater and Brian Wilson showed up and Alex Shilton. So now, and then, then we did, uh, we did a, we did a few other ones and we did a Kinks one and Dave Davies showed up and we played with him. So, um, you know, like the Brian Wilson one, that's where Brian first saw the Wonderments. Um, and so it became sort of legendary. And then we were doing those up until about the early two thousands. And then Paul had a son, um, who has, uh, nonverbal autism. And, um, when he got back into wanting to do the shows again, Jake, uh, his son became sort of the focus of them. And so we start doing uh, stuff again. And Rob Lawford has been the primary musical director. And I sort of was a co-director on the Kink show we did a few years back. And then for this one, Rob was working on a symphony with uh, Jake, Paul's son, which just debuted. And Paul was uh, adamant that nothing distract them from getting that done. So I said, well, this is Nuggets. I have done a Nuggets thing at Amoeba when the box set came out from Rhino. I did a review. I had P.F. Sloan, Jackie DeShannon, Keith Allison, and Danny Hutton. And I had a band backing them up, similar to the one you saw on stage at the Alex Theater. So I know how to do this music. I've been a musical director. I can do this. So start talking over with Rob, and he's like, well, I want to do it too. So great. And then Lenny Kay's overall, the the major overriding nuggets inventor. So I was dealing with, with Lenny directly. Uh, and then Rob and I split up some other duties, but as far as directing um, big chunks of the show, that's, that's what I was doing. And I, I'm very comfortable in that mode, um, you know, learning the songs and getting them right and making sure everybody's there and who's, you know, it's, 
and I love the music and I have a big guitar collection and stuff, you know, all the, all the old equipment. I have lots of sixties guitars and, and want to, you know, I love the authentic sounds. So want to make it sound as close, not, not like a new, a new interpretation of it. So who is, who matched the artist to the songs? Uh, well, that was primarily me. Um, if it wasn't the original artist doing the songs, like, you know, the leaves doing Hey Joe or um, Jim Lowe from the Electric Prunes doing uh, right. I Had Too Much to Dream. Um, like Evie Sands, I picked Invitation to Cry for her. And My World uh, Fell Down. My World Fell Down, um, that actually Darian picked that for, for Evie. We, we were on a search uh, for somebody to sing that song. And we had asked, asked Ron Dante. He didn't have enough time. We had asked... Um, actually one of Glenn Campbell's sons, because Glenn Campbell's the original vocalist on the Sagittarius record. And he said he would have done it if he had been in town. So um, Darian, I had tasked with you do the, you do the three orchestral pieces because I know you can break down the vocals and we'll get these scored. So that was run, run, run by the third rail. My world fell down by Sagittarius and then uh, sit down. I think I love you, which Darian called in a uh, weird Yankovic to play uh, accordion and, uh, and uh, Susanna Hoff's, and um uh Cass Elliott's uh daughter also right. on that. So um all of it came off it, I think it was the best Wild Honey show I've ever been involved in in all the years. It was just great. It was it was my first and won't be my last. And I and it was great because I went with Carrie Baker uh to the the rehearsals like the day before and and so sort of watching everyone kind of work through them. And it's also fun to see just, you know, the people who would just kind of hang out and watch everyone else. Um, and then the show it's itself. A bit of a circus. Just... That's that's the that's the one downside of being a musical director, is it's a bit of a circus of like, you know, everybody who's not involved in this get off the stage. <laughs> right. Yeah, but some people, like, you know, there were some people who just sort of stayed down in their dressing room, but there are others who were just like, they were just kind of out and about and they were watching everyone else. And I mean, I remember talking to Scott McCoy about My World Fell Down and he was like rushing up to hear, hear that version of it. And, um, you know, Peter Zaremba was just kind of hanging out, talking to everyone. He had three songs and sounded fantastic. And he told me that he was originally going to do Run, 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 but then it was like, you guys got Tom Kenny to do it instead, which was really fun. Well, yeah. What happened was it was a miscommunication between uh, Peter and I. I said, will you do run, run, one, run, run, run. And he thought it was uh, one by uh, a, a song of the same name done by a band on the Soma label. Uh, yeah, another two different ones on the, on the Nuggets uh, expanded box. So yeah. Yeah. So, so that was the miscommunication. So he's like, oh, that's not really what I want to do. So I, I, we, I gave him those, the other songs and it was fantastic. Little girl was my favorite to play with him because I got to do the twelve string, but it came out great. He was like he sort of stole the show for his part of it. I mean, he he was just a perfect front man for all that. He's someone who I chatted with, and I I interviewed him for Carol Pop afterwards because I'm like, oh, I got to talk to Peter Zaremba between flesh tones and all this stuff. He's he's fantastic. So, did anything there surprise you, or is there is there some memory that you take from that that you're like, wow, that was not something I ever thought I'd get to experience. Well, only that it was like we, I I put together most of it in 20 days. Uh, I was putting together stuff while I was on the road uh, with Mickey in a non-musical uh, uh, basis, doing the you know the logistics and production of a of a tour all through April, and that was May the 20th. And I got back I think April the 30th, and I bought a guitar on the road and I was rehearsing the songs on the road, like while I'm you know doing my day job, and uh, and then 
full on. I was just so surprised at how good it sounded the night of, because before we had an audience in the theater, I was like, kind of like mixed on how the sound was going to be when I would go out in the audience and sort of like, is this going to really sound good? Or, you know, the PA wasn't on all the time. So, and then I thought like, it just was pretty magical. The, the night of. I was just thrilled. Well, thank you so much. This has been really a treat for me and uh, Mazel Tov also. Um, you know, I saw you I saw you just got married, so I was just like, oh, good for him, and then and made time to talk to me right afterwards. So, Well, I, I appreciate your patience, and, and uh, it's been a thrill for me, too, because we talked about a lot of, lot of stuff I don't normally get to talk about, so pleasure. Have a great day. That's all for episode 114 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Andrew Sandoval for sharing his music passion and deep knowledge with us. Go to beatlandbooks.com to buy The Monkees, The Day-by-Day Story, and Mickey Dolan's photo book, I'm Told I Had a Good Time. These books are gorgeous. You could stream Sandoval's Come to the Sunshine radio show on Mondays from 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on WFMU's Rock and Soul Radio. Follow him on Instagram at Andrew Sandoval and on Twitter X at Come to the Sun. Caropop is produced by Chris Swake, who provides the missing links in these episodes. Thanks to our official Caropop friends who have paid $60, that's $5 a month for a year, to support this podcast. You can do the same on the episode link or by going to caropop.com. We need support to keep Caropop free and sustainable, and we appreciate you. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caropop on Twitter and Instagram at Caropopcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Caropop conversation. Thanks and Happy New Year.